Good morning, and welcome to episode 405 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. Uh, I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh, and uh, in about 20 minutes, Nick will be talking to Mike DiGiovanna, who covers the Angels for the Los Angeles Times. But right now, we have Matt Welch, who wrote the Angels essay for Baseball Prospectus uh, for the annual this year. And uh, who is uh, a wonderful Angels fan, one of the smartest uh, Angels fans, and one of the best uh, political writers in the country. Uh, Matt, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for that uh, generous, overly generous introduction. You're the editor-in-chief of uh, Reason Magazine, correct? This is correct. A uh, magazine for free minds and free markets. Uh, Libertarian-flavored political mm-hmm. commentary since 1968. Wonderful. I hope that I hope that that... Uh, comes up as we talk, but the first question I have has nothing to do with uh, libertarianism or politics at all. Thank um, God. <laughs> the uh, the Angels right now, it seems to me that if you ask anybody who follows them or who is involved with them what they're excited about right now, the first answer is Mike Trout, and the second answer is, is seems to always be Cole Calhoun. What is it about the Angels that always finds a guy like Cole Calhoun to mythologize, and what it, what what is it about Cole Calhoun specifically that has people excited. That's funny. I mean, there's always this uh, uh, slot available in Angels fandom for the red ass. Uh, you know, Darren Erstad fulfilled that role uh, magnificently, even when he wasn't a very good baseball player. Although he was, I think, we're coming to find now through modern technology, or at least the way that we now calculate wins above replacement, that, hey, you know what, he was a pretty good base runner and, and, and a very smart fielder, but uh, he couldn't hit after 2000 very well. Um, but there's always this role for the Troy Percival type, the Darren Erstad type, the Dave Hollins type, who shined so briefly uh, back in the day. Uh, just someone who seems kind of intense because of the, the hue of their goatee uh, <laughs> or something like that. Um, and also, he just was never... He didn't make any Baseball America Top 100 lists. No one really cared about him too much. I have a soft spot, and it might be a little bit different than the average Angel fan's soft spot, or it might be the exact same place, but for the the 25-year-old prospect, the 26-year-old prospect, uh, early in in, uh, Mike Sosha's tenure, he actually had a pretty good run of, like, finding value of – 27-year-old guys and 28-year-old guys. Like, let's just max out on Rob Quinlan in those three years that he's going to hit the crap out of left-handed pitches. Sean Wooten, come on down. You know, we're going we're, we're to get that one year out of you, and you're going to be great. And uh, Cole Calhoun, I think, is, has more than all of that. And he looks very self-possessed when he's out there. He always kind of, you know, what's the, the phrase, look like you've, uh, you belong or you've been there for a while. He has that look when he's at the plate. He has a professional at bat type of approach up there, which not every angel has had over the past several years. So, hey, you know, he's just an unlikely superstar, uh, and uh, and why the hell not? Pakoda kind of likes him too. Yeah, um, it's uh, there's uh, he can take a pitch. He uh, he seems to have a plan up there. He can hit lefties, um, and I hope. I hope that the Great War, and Sam, you know about this much more than us outsiders could ever even begin to imagine, but like the the struggle for the soul of the analytic brain of the Angels organization uh, will understand that Cole Calhoun is a much better candidate for the leadoff position than that shortstop kid who has a 
lifetime OBP, I'm guessing without looking it up, of 324. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the analytics, uh, the analytics personality of the Angels generally stops at the at the dugout, though, right? I mean, unless unless the plan to uh, you know to sort of have a line of communication to the dugout via Rick Eckstein works, I mean, there's still going to always be the social wall, right? I mean, it seems it seems unlikely that that anybody's going to present some lineup optimizer tool to Sosha and have him uh, uh, flip for it. Well, I don't know. I mean, you you actually, because you report on it and talk to these people, know that better than I do. Uh, you know, I, I think Socha has been making at least some preliminary noises during spring training that seem slightly different. I mean, Calhoun has had some leadoff at bats out there. Uh, the way he talks about certain people, he's he's been privileging uh, not necessarily on base percentages, but working counts and and certain types of things. Uh, in a way that almost offsets the let's ever <laughs> let Raul Albanez have a glove on his hand um, type of uh, comments that you get from him. So I don't really know. I don't. I don't understand how it works. I, I don't understand, and, and, and this is a open invitation to let me understand through your superior knowledge, but of what the new kind of uh, recruits on the coaching side, which I think are pretty interesting organization wide. You know, what is the fact that Dave Hansen is rolling around there uh, say about a Cole Calhoun being a more likely leadoff candidate, you know, than it would have if he hadn't been there. Well, we uh, we did not invite you on here so that I could talk. So don't. That's this true. Is, <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get tricked into into, into overperforming my contract here. Uh, I I want to go back to the 25 and 26 year old rookie because um, you know the Angels, as everybody knows, have a have a totally barren farm system. Um, and, but they do seem to have some sort of like, uh, like, like they have a little bit of depth when it comes to role players. Like the problem with their farm system is that nobody has any, any sort of high ceiling at all, but they do seem to think that they have a lot of role players here. Is that going to be enough to, to get value out of this farm system? And is there actually some sort of help, um, coming to support all these stars that they've, that they've got? Like is I mean, it conceivable? I, is it conceivable this farm system is just the right thing for this roster? I guess is the question. It's hard. I mean, the to me, I you know I don't know what you guys uh, uh, think. Looking at the uh, uh, at the Angels in the offseason, I've uh, pretty I've grown to be pretty pessimistic after being optimistic for a long time, and then I watched the first three innings of the first spring training game. And I'm like, we're going to win the World Series. <laughs> Did you see that Trout Grand Slam? Oh, my God. And, uh, and actually, more importantly than all of that, it was Albert Pujols running to first base in less than 13 seconds, I think, on the ground ball. It's like, hey, maybe, you know, the man could hit at some point. Um, so a couple of things could go right, and the Angels could definitely win the West. I mean, it's not really hard to conceive of uh, Pujols, is you know is something like he was uh, three years ago. Hamilton is what he was like in the second half of last year. They don't have too many injuries in the starting rotation. You know, one or two of the relievers work out okay, which hasn't happened in a really long time. And then you just sit back and and let Mike Trout uh, take you all the way. So in that, you can imagine that you have this crop of 25 and 26 year olds. The Cowgills, the the Grant Greens. I mean, you can imagine these people having good Hank Conger, you know, who I think should get as many at bats as as Chris Iannetta. 
you can imagine them playing a pretty good role and punching above their weight in terms of where they have ranked historically in prospect lists. And let's not forget, like, in this period of really, really, really lousy and legitimately lousy uh, Angels uh, development and reputation thereof, they still managed to produce Peter Borges, who's a hell of a player, I think, when he's uh, healthy. And, uh, and I would predict, based on all previous experiences, uh, and you can look this up, that he will have a 6.2 uh, wins above replacement in this year because it happened to Devin White, it happened to Mickey Rivers, it happened to Jim Edmonds. Whenever you trade an awesome and fast young center fielder from the Angels in a misguided win-now type of situation, he will always you know, get MVP votes. But uh, Peter Borges came up, and he wasn't a highly touted prospect uh, among anyone who wasn't named Argon or whatever, however you pronounce the Halo 7 guy uh, who does pretty good prospect uh, rankings over there. Mark Trumbo, no one paid any attention to. I saw Mark Trumbo, you guys have seen him probably more than I have, um, about five years ago, and all I remember thinking, uh, this is in spring training, I was just watching him take ground balls at first base, and I was like, well... As much as I know about baseball, I can tell you one thing for sure. This man will never play defense on a major league infield. He is so slow and ham-handed, and there's just no way this is going to work. And he turned out okay. So there is something there that I, I think they produce useful major leaguers a little bit more than they are giving credit for. And some of those people in this theoretical universe uh, in which I am, you know, smoking the happy stuff of the first three innings of the first spring, tra spring training game, um, you could see them doing well. Um, but that all said, uh, the bench, and I'm sure you guys have been looking at this, that bench is weird to formulate this year. There's so many difficulties they have with this particular roster, uh, and there's people like Andrew Romine who are out of options, Grant Green, who can't play defense at second base, as far as I can tell. Uh, I don't know how you mix this whole thing. J.B. Shuck, who is a useful piece, but he can't play center field and he can't hit with power. So what do you do with him instead of Colin Cowgill? So it's a very uh, difficult bench to assemble, and I don't have any particularly good ideas about how to do it. So uh, your essay was largely about where the Angels went wrong, and that took a few thousand words. Uh, to, to, to classify or categorize all the ways. Um, I thought you made a pretty compelling case that coaching had a lot to do with their success. And that's something that we talk a lot about on this show. What is a good hitting coach worth? What is a good pitching coach worth? And you, you made the case that to the Angels, it was possibly worth quite a bit. Yeah, the, um, it's really striking when you look at the bullpens. You know, like, um, I'm always uh, fascinated in general, but also in baseball, about how reputations uh, adhere to organizations kind of not necessarily at the exact same time as that they are earned, right? So uh, the Sosha Stoneman era of the Angels developed this incredible reputation for developing uh, you know, maximum value out of total scrap heap relievers, right? Al Levine. Who cared about Alibine? Nobody did. You know, Brendan Donnelly, who was he? These type of people um, who would just sort of come in, have two or three or four really outstanding. Ben Weber, what? Um, you know, who would have great years, uh, come from absolutely nowhere, waiver wire or some minor league deal. Um, and so there's the sense of that the Angels had, and specifically Socia Stoneman, had some special juice in all this. When you look at it, 
that juice existed in the late 90s before Socha and Stoneman came. Um, a lot of the kind of reclamation projects started then, uh, and a lot of the attributes that we think of when we think of Mike Socha of these sort of smart defensive teams that uh, were really uh, good on the base paths and played with a certain intensity, these things were evident in the late 90s, which is all kind of interesting to imagine. But um, comes down to it, all through Bud Black's reign as pitching coach of the Angels from 2000 to 2006, the Angels reliably were one of the best bullpens in the major leagues. I think for three consecutive years, they had the best bullpen ERA in the majors, or ERA+. plus. Um, constantly, I mean, it was just basically Troy Percival, you know, Scott Shields, and Frankie Rodriguez, but it wasn't just them, it was everybody else, too. Uh, they were just throwing on, they were losing pieces, like, oh, you know, we don't have room for Kevin Gregg. You go, you go somewhere else. Brendan Donnelly will trade you for a, a sack of marbles. Uh, so at some point, um, they went from having reliably one of the best bullpens to reliably one of the worst bullpens, which um, coincides perfectly with Bud Black's tenure. When he left to go to San Diego, Mike Butcher came in, and boom, all this ability to magically turn everybody um, that no one really paid any attention to into a magical reliever it just stopped, you know. There's no pixie dust for Kevin Jepsen. He just is reliably mediocre. You know, uh, Jason Bolger never really found the way. He had one good year out of six. Um, and this has happened again and again. Um, I think a lot of that has to be attributed to coaching, especially when you think of the Fernando Rodneys of the world, right? I think there's been some pretty interesting analysis. It's now We're now mixing the number-crunching, uh, and, the, and the scouting analysis of, like, what do you do with a Fernando Rodney who has this incredible stuff, right? But then he has to mix up how he uses that changeup and that 95-mile-an-hour fastball on these things. Um, and Tampa Bay seemed to figure out how to deploy this man in a way that the Angels didn't. And there have been a number of relievers who have done that. You know, Alex Torres was incredible last year. So the Angels have, have consistently, in the last six, seven years, squandered whatever relief talent they've had um, and haven't like had this great success story, whereas before they did, I've got to think that coaching is just part of it. Um, and when you think about how many of these quality coaches were just poached, Bud Black, gone, Renicky gone. Uh, you know, it, at some point, I think it was really interesting that the first big moves in this offseason were all on the coaching level, the instructional level, before we got into personnel. I think that speaks to maybe people in management identifying this as a problem. Yeah, and it is interesting. It's been a while since you heard an Angels coach who's been floated as a managerial candidate in the way that Black and, and Renicky and Madden were. I guess Alfredo Griffin is the one exception. But one of the implications of the coaching conversation is that it's sort of um, – well, the implication is that players' value is not static from team to team. One team is able to bring more out of a player uh, than another team would. And uh, so when you when you go back to the Peter Borges deal, uh, you sound down on it. Uh, but do you have any sense that Peter Borges was ever going to be kind of fully realized as an angel? And, and with that in mind and sort of with the angels' needs in mind, can you talk yourself into thinking that this was actually sort of um, turning a you know a resource they were never going to get full value out of into something they actually needed. You can talk yourself into it, and and uh, and you you led it the way already here, which is that okay. Look, Mike Trout wants to play center field, and he's Mike damn Trout. So <laughs> let the man play center field. 
it's the it's actually some of the impetus that has now been discounted over history, but for the worst, possibly the worst trade in angel history of Mike Napoli for Vernon Wells was we all knew that Mike Sosha would never play Mike Napoli more than 90 games a season unless he got hit by a bus and had to play first base and the first baseman was injured or something like that. Um, so you, you build in the Sosha discount. Like He just won't play this guy for whatever reason. He will make that choice. So given that reality that we live in, um, it might be better to have him go somewhere else. Um, I think we can all see the flaw of accepting that as a reality, which is that, look, Peter Borges' don't grow on trees. If you look at a per-plate appearance level of quality center fielders, if you believe in wins above replacement as a statistic, which I do, um, uh, or you know, even a little bit, he has been one of the best center fielders in the major leagues for the last three or four years. Um, him and Mike Trout and not, you know, Andrew McCutcheon and not many other people. So it, it hurts and it burns to accept that he was in a situation where his own manager was going to find whatever excuse he could come up with to not play him. Cause that just is, he's a lovely player to watch. He's so fast. He goes from, from home to third faster than anyone I've ever seen. And he's a marvelous defense of center fielder in a way that Mike Trout I don't think ever will be. Um, but, so, you know, we have the reality that we live in right now, which is that Trout is a center fielder and, and can play the position decently well. And the Angels didn't have a reliable third baseman. If David Freeze is not hurt, uh, if his back is not troubling him, if his personal life is such that he's comporting himself well, He'll have you know, a high on-base percentage and be a decent person for a couple of years, by which time his contract runs out, and hopefully we'll have you know, Caleb Cowart uh, on the way, and you can tolerate it. And it's just, uh, it makes sense as kind of a resource split. And meanwhile, we have Cole Calhoun now, and you have a pretty full outfield. So it kind of, you can talk yourself into it making sense. What will burn is when Peter Borges comes in, you know, seventh in the MVP vote this year, hitting 13 triples and playing awesome defense in St. Louis, when that could have happened here with some rational thinking. But, yes, you can talk yourself into it might work. So it's possible to imagine, as, as you wrote in your essay, Albert Pujols having something like his last St. Louis season or Josh Hamilton hitting all year like he did in the second half last season or David Fries having a bounce back year. So this team could hit, and it, it hit last year, uh, but does it have enough starting pitching for, for the offense to matter? It does if the starting pitching doesn't get hurt. I am a firm believer in Jared Weaver, especially uh, in the face of the same people who've been using different arguments for seven or eight years now about how he'll never be more than a number three starter. You know, Remember that whole baseball analyst to Rich Letterer thing? Rich Letterer, before... He was fighting for Burt Blylev and was fighting for the honor of Jared Weaver, and he was right back then. And the stat heads were totally wrong about like the possibility of Jared Weaver being a number one. Um, yeah, his velocity's down, but even last year, with everything that went wrong, he was still a great pitcher. So I think that Jared Weaver's awesome, and he's going to be great until he is not. <laughs> uh, and I'm very uh, impressed early on with Santiago and Tyler Skaggs, the problem is, you know, pitching, people get hurt, and people get hurt uh, 
you know, you're going to expose your lack of depth, and there just is no depth, right? There's no number six. If Joe Blanton pitches an inning this year, it will be just a catastrophe for the Angels. <laughs> and I don't know, what, what is it Shoemaker? Is that is that number six? You know, even in my ideal world, I'm trying to figure out who is number six. There's been almost no uh, instances that I can think of in team history, once or twice, basically, when a season went in with, okay, these are our five guys, and those five guys between them had even 140 starts, let alone 150. People get hurt. Throwing a baseball is a terrible thing to do to your arm. Someone is going to break down, and when that happens, it's going to expose things. And we don't know if Tyler Skaggs has got it totally figured out. Um, I hope so, and that'll be great, and you can imagine it happening. Santiago, you can imagine him happening. There's a lot of things. It's, it's not hard to imagine this whole thing working, but there's no depth there, and that's a really, really dangerous game. All right, so uh, the, we haven't really talked about Trout, and Trout is, of course, the sun that this entire team uh, orbits around, but there's this weird way, I don't know if you feel this at all, but there's this weird way that Trout's like last two seasons of being like a 10-win player almost makes me feel a little pessimistic about the Angels because I think, well, there's no way he can keep playing at that level. Nobody plays that level permanently. He's got to come down to earth. They've, you know, they've just they've just wasted his two 10-year seasons. And there's like a little bit of gambler's fallacy to this where I think, oh, well, now he's going to, he, he used up all his good and now he's going to be like just so-so or whatever. But <clears throat> is there any kind of paradoxical way that like you look at Mike Trout and you see how amazing he's been and actually think, well... Like he'll he'll come back to earth, and now the Angels have those three or four or five or six extra wins to find too. I am uh, I am so much more bullish on Mike Trout this year than I was last year, uh, because I just couldn't believe that that thing could be true. We just don't see this. It's not something. I mean, not just Angel fans, but baseball fans. When's the last time you saw a twenty-year-old play that well? You didn't. That's the answer to that question. And like the only answer to the question of when's the last time you saw a 21-year-old play that well is Rogers Hornsby. So you didn't see that either. Nobody has seen this. Um, when you repeat that thing, uh, that changes everything. And I think that changed, uh, among other things, the Angels' um, approach to the Trout contract negotiations. There was a real, you know, they, they were making a virtue out of necessity or whatever, but you know, when they were reluctant to raise him even a dollar and a half last year, part of it was like, okay, it was incredible, but he did it once. When he did the exact same thing a second year, uh, that changes the dynamic there. So that's just really who he is. This is his level. I don't, I, I can't believe just as a rationalist or a would-be rationalist, um, I can't believe that he's going to be a 10-win player every year for the next seven years because that's just we haven't seen that it doesn't make any sense the only person who is close to that is willie mays um you know it'd be nice to have willie mays playing center field in anaheim for a while um uh, that said there's no real reason to think that he's going to regress now that he has done this two years in a row and part of this is kind of an eyeball thing it's not just wishful uh thinking but the way that he actually plays and the way that he, his swing, uh, I don't know how old you guys are, but his swing reminds me of, of, uh, of Bill Madlock. Bill Madlock had the shortest right-handed swing I've ever seen in my life, just completely compact. He was quiet up there, 
and he had this incredibly short swing. When you have a really short swing and all that power in it, you can make decisions at the last minute. Uh, he, he's very contained. You could see his batting eye developing last year, especially. He's controlling the situation. All the stats, when you look at you know, how he does after he's faced a pitcher one time, two times, three times, everything suggests that he's not just good, he's smart, or that he's baseball smart at least. He might be you know, dumb as a box of hair for all I know, but like he's adjusting to the situation and improving his performance by using his brain. Uh, and his body, and he's in phenomenal shape from what I can just see looking at pictures. So I am pretty confident that he's going to play extraordinary baseball unless he gets severely injured, and that's a wonderful thing. I do think that the Angels certainly wasted in the last two years. The biggest fear for him, I think, as an Angel fan, especially given the trajectory of the organization from being this this team that seemed like they really beat the business cycle. Like they had figured it out how to be as successful as any other franchise, you know, arguably along with the Yankees and the Cardinals and basically nobody else, the Red Sox. Um, they had done it, but for much less money for a really long time. And they'd stockpile draft picks, all this kind of stuff. And they did from that base, they really squandered it. And you wonder and you worry that they're doing to Mike Trout what the Giants did for so long with Barry Bonds, which is that, hey, you know what? We're always going to be at least pretty good because we've got this once-in-a-generation Hall of Famer playing for us. Um, I really hope that they don't fall back on that and take that for granted and that they see it more as a challenge of how can we keep this guy after he turns you know, 26 or 27 in a way where he's interested, which is to say that we're winning. Um, so uh, I hope I'm not necessarily encouraged yet, but uh, you know, it's spring, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. And are you optimistic that, that he will be around, that he'll sign some sort of extension for the, the terms that have been reported, which, which seem to a lot of people to be uh, a little low considering uh, how safe a bet he is and how close he is to arbitration? Yeah, you know, it, it, it seems uh, pretty low, but then again, if he's doing it in such a way so that he's a free agent when he's 28, <laughs> you know, you can take the haircut of only earning $180 million or $200 million or whatever if you know that you're going to be a free agent in your prime. And the other thing that gets some talk, but probably not as much as it should, is that the, um, the basic agreement might change. I mean, the labor relations might change. There's a lot of potential uncertainty in the world of baseball labor relations that a good, solid $200 million contract might go a long way towards uh, smoothing over. So I don't think it's insane for him to take that kind of deal, even though it's short of the numbers that we've all been, you know, fantasizing as his potential agent uh, or whatever. Uh, I think uh, it sounded like just from the way that he was describing it, the team was describing it, that there's something in the works. So I think they'll sign at least a moderate extension spring training. All right, so uh, this is the part where we ask you to predict. So we need you to tell us how many wins the Angels are going to have this year. Ninety-four. Wow, that's a uh, that is that is that is a lot of wins. <laughs> it wasn't. That's what they averaged for like seven years there for a while. That wasn't. That was the new normal. They were going to the playoffs every year. It's not an insane idea, you know. A team that with Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton, who are not yet geriatric and 
there's this kid in center field who I hear is pretty good, and Jared Weaver and a couple of other people. Um, I'm worried about the bullpen. I think the bullpen is, uh, has been bad for so long, and even though it seems to be bolstered, Jerry DePoto has a weird fondness for relievers who can't throw strikes, which, oddly enough, is absolutely true of a little reliever named Jerry DePoto. Uh, he, I think, walked around four batters for nine innings pitch, which is a terrible number for a reliever. And if you look at uh, the Angels, they're just stockpiling these guys. Dane DeLaRosa, who was the big success story of last year, his, I mean, he's a 30-year-old rookie. Um, his whole uh, minor league and major league career up to that point was he just walked people like crazy. I mean, there's uh, every new acquisition, with the uh, uh, exception of, uh, of Smith, uh, has been a career high walker. So I think it's going to be a Don Stanhouse uh, situation here in the bullpen, which I'm very worried about. But, uh, yeah, you can see your way into this team winning, for sure. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so up next we have um, Nick talking to Mike DiGiovanna. Uh, don't forget to please go subscribe to the Play Index at Baseball Reference. Uh, the coupon code is BP. Um, and send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com, and we'll answer them all tomorrow. Matt Welch is the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine. He, um, you can read his writing occasionally at halosheaven.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at mleewelch, and he's just a good guy. So uh, we'll be back tomorrow, and uh, here comes Nick. Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm here with Mike DiGiovanna of the Los Angeles Times. How's it going, Mike? Uh, doing fine. How you doing? I'm doing okay. So, last year, the Angels were one of the more unbalanced teams in baseball. They finished 7th in the majors in runs scored and 24th in runs allowed. How did that disparity affect the Angels' approach to this offseason? Uh, greatly. Uh, <laughs> most of their... <laughs> You know, their biggest targets uh, were pitching, both in the bullpen and the rotation. And, uh, you know, they didn't have a lot to trade, so uh, they basically gave up one of their best offensive players in Mark Trumbo, 30-homer, 100-RBI guy, and got two young pitchers back in Hector Santiago and Tyler Skaggs, both left-handers who will be in the rotation this year. And uh, they also really targeted the bullpen um, they needed uh, a lot more depth in the bullpen. Um, basically, they're like most, like many bullpens, had sort of devolved into a two-tiered bullpen where you have a couple of guys you trust with leads and a couple of guys you don't. And they need uh, six or seven. They need to go six or seven deep. So they signed Joe Smith, uh, one of the better setup men mm-hmm. in the league over the last three years, and uh, acquired Fernando Salas in a trade uh, in the David Freeze trade with the Cardinals. And they added uh, a couple of pretty good left-handers and uh, uh, Brian Moran, who's a Rule 5 guy, and the return of Sean Burnett uh, after elbow surgery should help the bullpen as well. So a lot more pitching depth uh, than they had last year. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Skaggs and Santiago as those two big acquisitions from the Trumbo trade. Uh, Which of those two guys do you think will have a bigger impact this year, and who's more important to L.A.'s long-term future? Um, they're both really important. Um, it's hard to tell. Uh, Skaggs probably has a little more upside, but mm-hmm. Santiago is a little more polished right now. Uh, he's a guy with a lot of pitches. He throws like five or six pitches, including a screwball, which you just yeah. don't see much anymore <laughs> in baseball. 
but Skaggs, you know, he throws like 94. He's got a pretty mm-hmm. tight curveball with a changeup. Uh, but he's he's only 22 and and has really only touched the big leagues uh, for 13 games. So he to me seems like the guy who can maybe uh, probably has the potential to be a little more volatile. Whereas Skaggs can be a little more reliable. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, Santiago can be a little yeah. more reliable right now. But I think in the long run, Skaggs probably has uh, a little bit more upside. But, uh, you know, they're, they're both going to be equally important uh, to this team because they don't have a lot of starting pitching depth and they really can't afford a lot of non-production or any kind of major injury out of the five guys they have. Yeah, so they have um, C.J. Wilson and um, Jared Weaver at the top of the rotation, and then Garrett Richards, who made four, uh, let's see, 17 starts last year and then also made some relief appearances. Um, what does Richards need to do to really step up and be a part of this rotation for a full season? Yeah, uh, Garrett, Garrett took a pretty big step last year to win that rotation spot. He uh, you know, replaced Joe Blanton. Uh, at the end of July, made 13 starts, uh, pitched every five days through July. I'm sorry, through August and September, and, and pitched really well. And you know, he's uh, he's an interesting guy. You know, he throws 95, 96 with some uh, pretty good secondary pitches, and really took a step forward last year in my mind, and uh, really established himself as a starter. Uh, even though he's still pretty young, he's got really good stuff, and uh, I feel like he's going to have a pretty strong impact. And Seems to be the kind of uh, kid who can be a horse in this rotation. So, uh, you know, they're really counting on him to uh, be a solid number number three guy. This spring, the Angels have begun talks with Mike Trout regarding an extension. How eager are both sides to get it done, a deal done this year? Yeah, you know, Mike Trout's uh, agent, the Angels have been. Uh, you know, they've really been talking since uh, November, December, uh, all winter long on this thing. And I think from Trout's end, he'd, uh, you know, this kid's one of the best players in the game. He's going to make a bundle of money. He knows it. Uh, I think he wants to keep the deal to about six years because he wants to, uh, you know, become a free agent at 29. Not mm-hmm. so much, at least in my opinion, to, to bolt and go play for the Yankees or Phillies. I just think he's... Uh, you know, he's, he wants to play for a winner, a team that's going to compete. Uh, and when you look at this team over the next five or six years and their farm system isn't very good, you have some pretty heavy uh, contracts with Pujols and, and Josh Hamilton for the next four years, it might not be a, the best situation for him to uh, to win. So I just think he wants to keep his options open. Uh, so I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, that'll be the deal. They end up with something in the six-year range and, uh you know, the Angels would like to lock him up for seven, eight, nine, maybe even ten years, but uh, you know they're also gonna not gonna be you know disappointed to go uh, six years because that'll buy out three years of free agency. So uh, and that's better than nothing. Yeah, you'd have to imagine from Trout's perspective to be able to get that hundred something million dollar paycheck and get that locked in, but still have the chance for another massive contract once he is in his late twenties. That that would be a good balance for him. And as you mentioned, the Angels pretty much want to lock him up as long as they can. Yeah, that's the uh, we're hearing this term uh, a lot more now with some of these uh, young guys signing deals really quickly. The second bite of the apple, mm. and you know, I, I don't know that'll be in his prime at 29. I'm not sure yeah. how he's going to get much better than yeah. he is now. <laughs> but he, you know, assuming 
he stays productive over these next five or six years, he'll uh, he'll probably do okay on the next contract too. So uh, it's uh, you know, and the one thing we it's hard to really put a finger on is what kind of pressure he might be feeling, whether it's overt or uh, you know subtle uh, from the union and from other players to sort of set the bar. You know, being if not the best, one of the top two or three players in the game. You know, he's sort of going to set the standard here for for the top players in his service class and maybe in, uh, you know, the first couple of years of free agency. So, uh, you know, that to me might be the thing that holds the negotiations more than anything. You mentioned the two guys who have already signed big contracts with the Angels, Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton, who both struggled last year and have a lot of money left on those contracts. How are those two players' attitudes different as they compare, as they try to bounce back and prove their contracts weren't a mistake? Well, Pujols, you know, last year was just a mess. Uh, he started the year with plantar fasciitis, and his mm-hmm. left foot was still hobbling a little bit, a little bit from the surgery on his right knee the previous winter. It was never the same. Uh, just couldn't run or really move around at all. Was pretty much relegated to DH most of the time. And by the end of July, the... Uh, you know, the foot gave out, and uh, it was probably a blessing in disguise for him and the Angels because it basically gave him a, a two-month head start on rehab uh, by tearing the, the, the fibers in his foot. He essentially replicated what a surgical procedure would have done in October. Mm-hmm. So he looks good this spring. He's starting to hit the ball. Uh, last couple of days, he's really driving the ball after a slow start. He looks really good uh, on defense, not that uh, that's what he's getting all that money for, but... He does look uh, pretty mobile and, and, and limber and uh, in the field. And, uh, you know, once he gets his timing, and, and, you know, he should, to me, he should have a good year. There's no reason mm-hmm. not to, considering Trout's going to be hitting in front of him and, you know, Hamilton behind him. Uh, and plus, he's really motivated. I, I, I've only had him for two years here, but I sense he plays better with a chip on his shoulder. Uh, and he's he senses and, 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 and feels and knows that people are really doubting him. Yeah. They're uh, doubting whether he'll be uh, close to the player he was in St. Louis, and they're questioning uh, that contract and whether he's worth it. So he's got a lot to prove, and, and it's going to be interesting. And plus, he's uh, eight homers away from 500, so a big milestone for him coming up. Now, Josh Hamilton to me is a little bit more of a mystery because he did not have a major injury last year. This guy was relatively healthy all year uh, and just uh, for four months barely did anything. So he did uh, hit some around 335 for the last five uh, weeks or so, five or six weeks, and that's encouraging. Uh, he's, he's gained some weight. Uh, he feels physically uh, in a better position to uh, sort of be the player that he was in Texas, but you know we haven't even seen him all spring because of a calf strain. So uh, he's hoping to come back early next week sometime. So it's really, at this point, kind of hard to get a read on where Josh is exactly. With Trumbo in Arizona, Pujols will be moving back to first, and then Raul Abanez appears to be the most likely candidate to replace Pujols at DH. Do you expect Abanez to start every day, or will they try to work in other guys, especially against lefties? Yeah, it depends who uh, who is on their bench. Um, I think against a tough lefty, what you'll probably see is uh, maybe Albert will uh, 
he could DH. Well, first of all, the, the bigger issue in terms of, as opposed to tough lefties, is how much they're going to pace Albert yeah. at yeah. first. So he's probably going to get some DH days built into his schedule. Uh, so Abanius will obviously have to come out of the lineup those days. You know, the the makeup of their bench is still to be determined right mm-hmm. now with guys like Colin Calgill and J.B. Shuck. And, you know, J.B. hits left-handed, Colin hits right-handed. You know, uh, you know, is Carlos Pena, another left-handed hitter, going to make the team? Is, uh, you know, whoever their utility infielder is, is he going to be a guy who DHs? Uh, what it will probably end up being is, uh, you know, maybe the, the backup middle infielder will start uh, at second and they'll give Kendrick a DH day against a tough lefty, uh, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. They don't have, uh, to me, they don't have the bat right now to platoon with Abanya, so he's going to be sort of the guy to start the year. You know, they do have this uh, C.J. Cron kid, the first base prospect, who's shown some pretty good power here in camp, but I don't think he's quite ready to uh, to open the season in the big leagues, and they just don't have the kind of opening on the bench because they're carrying an extra pitcher or two to just have a platoon D.H., so... You know, it's going to be a Banya is uh, pretty much your bust uh, at that DH spot uh, for April, May, June. Cole Calhoun will be competing with J.B. Shuck for that last outfield spot. Who's the favorite between the two of them, and what can each player do this spring in order to win that job? Actually, Cole is going to be the starting right fielder, so yeah. he's not really competing with okay. J.B. Shuck. Uh, J.B. is more competing with Calville and, and this Matt Long kid for that reserve outfield uh-huh. spot. Uh, you know, Cole had a really strong two-month finish last year uh, and, and earned, you know, I really think that was kind of what prompted, uh, you know, the trade of Borges to St. Louis. Uh, they felt like Cole, you know, in the big picture was going to be a more productive player. He's a good, scrappy, uh, powerful little guy, and uh, he's going to be leading off for him. So, uh, you know, he's going to have a lot of responsibility for setting that table for Trout, uh, Pujols, and Hamilton. But he's a pretty mentally tough kid, and... I don't think anything's going to really intimidate him. Pakoda projects the Angels to have one of the most improved teams in baseball this year. How many games do they need to win in order to have what they would consider a successful year, and what do you think is a reasonable expectation for them? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I don't follow that stuff too closely, but I know in past years Pakoda's always been wrong with the Angels, so <laughs> I'm not sure how much stock to put into yeah. that. Um, I think a successful season is either winning division or, you know, Making the playoffs, uh, and I'm not so sure a, you know, making a one-game wild-card playoff and getting bounced out is a successful season. Mm-hmm. You know, this team's had high expectations for many years and haven't made the playoffs in four years. So, I think it, it, at the very least, uh, it, you know, they they need to make the playoffs for it to be a successful season. And to do that, they're going to need to win, you know, 87, 88, 89, 90 games. So. Uh, you know they're definitely going to have to uh, make a pretty good jump, uh, at least a 10-game improvement over last year's 78 wins, and probably a lot more than that. Uh, it's just going to be a very tough division, uh, tough league. I don't know. Maybe it'll be a little more parity, and it won't take 90 wins to get in. But mm-hmm. uh, no matter how many wins it takes, if this team doesn't make the playoffs again, that's uh, that's not going to be good for the general manager, and might not be good for the manager. All right, Michael, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. All right, take care. All right, bye. That was Mike DiGiovanna of the Los Angeles Times. 
You can read Mike at latimes.com sports or follow him on Twitter at Mike to Giovanna. Tune in tomorrow for the listener email show, and next week we'll be discussing the Cardinals, Athletics, Giants, and White Sox. I have, yeah, I, I hear me a little bit. Oh, I don't hear you. Oh, I don't really hear you, but I hear me. Is this one of these between two ferns things? <laughs> Did you, uh, I, I'm guessing you didn't come here to plug the Affordable Care Act. <laughs>